and uh, you can grab your Bibles if you'd like. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3. Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, thank you once again for these stories that uh, we get to carry around with us and to pause for a moment to meditate and to think about. And as we dive into this next chapter of this movement, this early movement of Christianity, this Jesus movement, uh, may our minds and our hearts be uh, awakened once again to how in the world this movement took off and has affected billions of people to this day. So help us to just engage a little bit more. And as we do, not just learn, but be transformed again by the power of your spirit. Uh, may we be open to hearing what you might have to teach us. And maybe even today in this message, in this teaching, um, we find a whole new sense of hope, a whole new sense of salvation, a whole new sense of love and grace, a whole new sense of connection to you. And I pray this in your name. Amen. We started this series um, because for some time now, especially in our current context, the faith of Christianity slash evangelicalism slash whatever words you want to use it um, has been going through t- some tumultuous times. And so we've subtitled this series, How Did We Get Here? Because the idea of a faith tradition is to always ask the question, well, what was this thing that we have inherited? And if we can go back to what that thing was, maybe, just maybe, we can reclaim some of the original ethics, the original core central teachings and pieces of that puzzle, and then correct, maybe, some of the ways in which we're behaving today and to give us that perspective. So over the last uh, couple weeks, uh, we've had some uh, really uh, wonderful teachings. Omer started us off with, why did anyone write this stuff down? And I love his little line in there. Uh, Luke says all that Jesus began to do and to teach, and then Acts is this continuation because Jesus started something. And Acts is the beginning of us finishing it, completing it, furthering it into the future because this is something that radically shifted and changed and transformed them. And they wanted it to go forward. And they felt the whole world needed to hear this message. And that was Pastor Mark's message in part one and two. This, is, this isn't a message just for the elites or the specially religious ones who have been chosen out of the populations. No, this is for everybody. And the people that you may not think are included are, they are in this movement. And it might make us a little bit uncomfortable. And part of what we've been experiencing in Christianity in our current context are the sentiments or the feelings of, wait, wait, I don't know if those people can be a part of this church or this movement because they fall into this particular category, whether that be a moral category or a social category. And part of this movement is to say, no, no, they are in. Everybody's in. And the people that then went out to share are not doing an act called witnessing. They are witnesses. They saw something. It transformed them and moved them in uh, to the future. And part of looking into the sky, the ascension of Jesus, was the thing that they witnessed is this heaven and earth coming together in one. No more separation, but now coming into one. And then Danielle shared on Acts chapter 2, it's happening again because the story of God coming down on Mount Sinai in Exodus is happening again, except now coming down in the people. So all the same elements that we see at Pentecost were there at the uh, giving of the Torah, giving of the Ten Commandments 
on Mount Sinai. Today, I want to share with you a message entitled, Times of Refreshing. In chapter 3, starting in verse 1, there's a story about a man that is healed. And I thought, sure, I could share that story with you, but it's best just for you to see the story. Peter and John went to pray. They met a li- there he is. And then this is the fun part. Praising God, walking and thinking. See the faces of an astounded. So this is the story that opens up chapter 3, and we come into essentially our first miracle of the Acts story. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about miracles today. I don't want to get into all of the uh, discussion about our modern context and what we think about miracles and the tension and the, the thing about all of that. Um, That's definitely something for another time. What I want to ask the question is, why are those stories even told in the first place? This kind of goes back to my uh, talk on the ascension. We get so caught up in, did it happen, and did it happen this way, and how did it happen, and what kind of molecules happen to be shifting that we miss the greater story of why this is in there. So here's what comes after that walking and leaping and praising God passage. Verse 11 of chapter 3. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colony, which you need to pause for a moment and just remember that it feels sometimes to us that miracles in the biblical era just happened all over the place because we read about miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle when we read our Bible. And this is just a reminder that the reason why you read miracle after miracle is because they're telling story after story after story. It's not as if they're telling story and then, and then they just wait for some time to tell another story. They're all compressed. And so it feels as if God shows up and does these miracles all the time. Then why doesn't God do it? In the same way. So we have that little complication. I sometimes remind people when they think about, well, God showed up to Moses and he appeared. And I want to have that experience too. And I just have to remind people, God showed up to Moses once, maybe twice, maybe three times, depending upon how you count it, in 120 years. Three times does God show up. And so what to us may seem like all the time is actually not all the time which helps us be much more connected with our past and and the people that have come before us. These people were astonished. They were astonished. This is happening. When Peter saw this, he said to them, now get ready for the speech. Something miraculous has just happened. A guy who is sitting there who is lame now gets up and walks and everybody's astonished. What kind of speech would you give as a follower of Jesus? What kind of speech would you give? (laughs) I love this speech. Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you, you idiots? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. So far, so good. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate. (laughs) Hey, how did this happen? Oh, I killed Jesus? Is that how? Oh, that's how that happened. Oh, I get it now. Um, Though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. I mean, this is not like the typical evangelical, hey, come to Jesus speech, like you killed Jesus. This is the whole, 
This makes no sense. And then he says, I mean, he gets even more direct. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Now, this phrase, the author of life, is a beautiful phrase, a beautiful title for Jesus. And what I love about this is basically what Peter is saying is you cut off the branch, literally the branch that you were sitting on, the very thing that gives you life is the thing that you killed, the thing that you spurned, the thing that you thought wasn't important. And doesn't that sound like many of us? The very thing that gives us life, the very thing that could bring us life, the very thing that is the foundation of our lives, we often spurn, we often dismiss. And in this particular case, we kill. What's more devastating about this is not just that we ourselves individually are sitting on the branch that we cut off, but we take a whole bunch of people with us. And this is a little bit of what Peter is saying here. You killed the author of life. And this is what we all are participants in. The very life that was supposed to be here to sustain us, to love us, to be that grounding of foundation, we have just completely dismissed. I've been in situations where I've shared biblical truths or teachings around Jesus, and it just gets rejected and rejected and rejected over and over. Come be a part of this community, uh, connect yourselves with friends and all, all that kind of work in order to overcome loneliness and depression. And we say, no, 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 no. It becomes what I call a swirly of doom. We just constantly get in that particular position of rejecting the very thing that is supposed to get, save us and give us life. But he does say here, Peter, God raised him from the dead. That happened. And we are witnesses of it, going back to our teaching a while ago. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. So he gives the explanation of Jesus, that there was this death, this resurrection, and now we are empowered to perform these miraculous uh, events because of Jesus. And then he moves on. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Peter uses this miraculous event to encourage the people to repent. Now, this repent word is so unfortunately loaded. Uh, many of us have the finger-pointing-in-our-face kind of image of repent. Some of us think of repentance as saying, I'm sorry. Um, however, saying I'm sorry is not repentance. Saying I'm sorry is called a confession, or it's empathy, but it's not repentance. Daniel Tiger might have it a little bit correct in his song. So the first step is saying, I'm sorry. But the second step is, how can I help? Repentance is much bigger than just simply feeling something. It is actually a behavioral turn, a shift towards something. The Greek word behind this is the word metanoia or metanoeo. And it has this definition of to change one's way of life. And that, that word noos actually means mind, to change a mind and actually behave in a different way. 
But if you notice some of the commentary, some of the definitions, it's to change one's way of life as a result of complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. Repentance in this definition is not about just feeling sorry or feeling bad. It's making deliberate steps, behavioral changes. The underlying definition that I like to use, however, is this. Returning home. I often use this uh, analogy when I teach some, some kids sometimes. I have a kid walk out, and then I say, repent. And their job is to turn around and walk back to the place that they actually started. Because in Hebrew, the word teshuvah actually simply means to return. So next time you hear that repent, or next time you read that word repent in the scriptures, or next time somebody encourages you to repent, unfortunately, because it's so heavy laden with like psychological guilt and shame in our culture, it's hard to extract ourselves from feeling bad when somebody says to repent. But the word repent in the biblical sense is an encouraging, beautiful word. Come back home. It's like a child who has gone off, like the prodigal son, and the father and the mother, the parents that come back home where you belong. Come back here where you're safe. Come back here where you know where, who you are to be reminded of your identity, to be reminded of your place in this world, to re- be reminded of your community. So Peter tells them, repent, come back home. In order that, and here's the key phrase for today, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. So what does this phrase times of refreshing mean? Question, when was the last time you felt refreshed? Maybe it was just a few minutes ago when Tony made you a wonderful little iced frappuccino on a hot, wonderful day such as this. When was the last time you were refreshed? Maybe it was you got a vacation. You got out of work. You got out of school. You got out of the busyness of whatever it is that you had to do. You got out of doing dishes. You got out of cooking. And you did the all-inclusive resort. And you just sat there, rang a bell. And somehow, miraculously, food and drink and towels just showed up where you were. When was the last time you felt refreshed? This happens Every morning in our house where there's a wake-up and immediately some little voice says, it's time to play now. (laughs) After a good sleep, after a good rest. Some of you engage in some disciplines, yoga, relaxation, exercise, taking a hike. And this is a time when you feel refreshed, a time when new life comes over you. And then one of the descriptions that I like of feeling refreshed is you're actually working really hard for something. You are disciplining your body, your life, your ethic to get somewhere. And along the way, you get a refreshment. Of course, we're in Silicon Valley, so I had to put these up because sometimes your page just freezes on you. There's something stuck in cyberspace. And of course, you need a refreshment. I'd like to introduce you to another word that it goes along with this times of refreshing, and that is the word exile. Every single one of those examples that I gave you about when was the last time you felt refreshed has in it an implication that the circumstance or the life that you were living was not refreshing. Work, difficulty, challenge, burden, 
tragedy, struggle, shame, guilt, all of the things that you carry around with you every single day, all of the things that just cause your blood pressure to rise, that cause stress and anxiety, that cause the cortisol levels in your body to just skyrocket. Those are the stress hormones. All of those times of refreshing that come imply that all of us at one particular point or probably throughout most of our lives live in a place that is not refreshing, that is difficult and challenging. And what I'd like to suggest to you is that when Peter says this to them, times of refreshing, repent, because there's times of refreshing that are coming, they are in a very similar place, a place that is not yet where they want to be, a place that is not where they used to be. That is a place called exile. Exile is a biblical term, is a biblical concept to mean you have been kicked out. You have been thrust out of what you thought was safe, comfortable, what you knew was going to be good. And it got, whether by circumstance, by forcing, whatever it was, you got thrust out of that situation. And now you're in the desert, you're in the wilderness, you're wandering around, you don't know what's coming next, and you're struggling to find which end is up. And then you can kind of see sometime in the future, if I can only get there, whether that's that job or that relationship, or if I can get that schooling thing done, or if I can land that home, whatever it is, you can see it sometime in the future. You can see if I can get there, I can find that time of oh, breathing. This is where I want to be. That, that is the end destination. I am healthy again. All is well again. Exile is that space in between. Exile is that place where you, you don't know where you are. You're just kind of wandering, and you can kind of see hope, but you're not there yet. And you miss home, but you're, you can't go back. That's called exile. And the Israelites experience exile. This is a picture, for those of you who have been with us for a while, you know about the destruction of Jerusalem. And foreign powers came in and destroyed the place. And what happened to the people? They got kicked out. They got exiled. Home was no longer home. Now they want to return and reestablish their place, but they're not there yet. They are in exile. By the way, this famous passage of Jeremiah 29, 11, that most people talk about, a wonderful verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. This is a famous passage. I love this picture. Because it is set on top of the picture of the destruction of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 29, 11 comes in that context when they are in exile. When they are not home. And they're not where they want to be. The reality of exile is a reality that many of us know. We're in between. Uh, the, The relationship was wonderful and sometime in the future, the relationship might be good again. But right now, we're just kind of, something happened. Life, circumstances, and you're in between. The job, I thought, was going really, really well. And then all of a sudden, you got fired, you got laid off, you got another opportunity, and you're, you're hoping for some sort of, you are in between. Um, I, some of this actually has been written about really beautifully by Jeff Mannion in a book entitled The Land Between. Because most of us, most of us know what it's like to be in between. We know what it's like to be in exile. Question, what else could be in exile? The church for many, many years, depending upon how you like to study or think about this movement of Jesus, 
has been, many say, in exile. In other words, the church isn't in that first century moment where Jesus was there and everything was good and everybody got along (laughs) and everybody was happy and, and the movement was pure. And we're not quite at Revelation where the heavens are coming down and Jerusalem's coming down and we're all going to be hunky-dory after the destruction of this world, right? All of the future things, we kind of sit in this in-between space. Some suggest that we are also in exile just when it comes to like the cosmic thinking. And then there are many, many, many people in Christianity today where their faith is in exile, the faith of your childhood, what you grew up with, how you understood salvation, how you understood baptism, how you understood what truth was, what you understood about God and Jesus and the Spirit, all of that somehow got shifted and changed. And you ran into tragedy, disease, secularism, naturalism, science, refugees. You ran into all sorts of things that didn't quite fit in perfectly to that way of doing Jesus in church. And now you find yourself in a whole new place and you're not quite sure what to do with all of that. And some of us, many of us in the conversations that I have are so frustrated with what the church was telling us, but so frustrated that the church isn't where we think it needs to be. Spark is a little bit part of that conversation. How are we, where's the church going? Where are people of faith going? I remember through multiple periods of our church where things were happening in our world and there was a big question, will we talk about it? Will we engage? And that question alone indicates to me that for many of us, our faith is in exile. We've been kicked out of the thing that we once had and we're trying to get to a new place, a new home, a new understanding, a new expression but we're still kind of stuck in this middle ground, not quite sure how to make our way forward. That's exile. It is your reality, wherever you are, in waiting. And the big question, the question that all of us have to ask whenever we're experiencing exile is this. What do you do? What do you do in the meantime? How do you live in this particular space? How do you live in this particular season of life where you're no longer where you used to be, you're not quite where you want to be, but you're in exile. What do you do? I'm going to suggest to you that this speech of Peter is addressing exactly that complicated spiritual and emotional state. If you notice, the people were astonished that this gentleman got healed, and they were amazed And they're still under Roman rule. And they're still trying to figure out what is this Jesus movement and how does it work with economics and politics and society and all of that stuff. And Peter and this movement of Jesus comes all the way in to people that are in exile, still under oppression, not where they want to be, missing home. And he says to repent, come back home, turn to God, so that you will have this phrase, Times of refreshing. Now, this Greek word, anapsuxes, which is so fun to say, has all sorts of beautiful definitions. Relief, a state of cheer and encouragement after a period of having been troubled or upset. Refreshing, encouragement, recovery 
of happiness. One commentator even said of this word, a reviving of your soul. And then one Jewish commentator mentioned breathing space, a cooling of the spirit or a cooling of breath. This phrase, times of refreshing, this phrase refreshing is essentially what Peter is saying is there are moments that you can have in exile that will give you a fresh breath of air, a sense of refreshing, a sense of relief from the stress and the pain and the anxiety. Now, notice, as we have talked before, this doesn't mean that your circumstance goes away. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything around you is suddenly shifted into the utopian experience that you want to have, where everything is hunky-dory, everything is perfect exactly the way it is. No, what Peter says is that when you repent, when you turn back, when you come back to home, you will experience in this season of exile a time, a little bit of breathing room, a little bit of relief. In other words, what I think he's suggesting is that there is a spiritual exercise within the in the meantime. Within this period and season of your life where you're not where you want to be and you're not where you used to be and you're struggling to try to make all of that be realized, there are moments, there are moments in this meantime when you can practice this spiritual exercise by repentance coming home and you will experience a brief time of refreshing. Uh, there's a Hebrew word behind that which means to enliven again. It comes from Exodus chapter 23. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day don't do any work so that your ox and your donkey may rest, so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. In other words, I think what Peter is doing is he's pulling in this idea of Sabbath rest, a time where you get relief, a time where you get encouragement, and not making it just about a daily or weekly schedule, but making about all of the hopes and the expectations of what you thought your life was or was supposed to be. You need a Sabbath in the expectations of your life, not just a Sabbath one day a week. You need a Sabbath because you think you're going somewhere and you're hoping for some sort of end goal and you're pushing and you're hoping, but you're in exile. But you need a Sabbath. You need a relief. You need a moment where you can just cool your breath and cool your spirit and enjoy that you get to hope and dream about what that future is. It's very similar to what we've talked about before where the then comes forward to the now in these little bits and pieces. The world, in, in some ways, is on its journey of being revived. That's the whole movement of Jesus, that we are taking this broken place and we are trying to put it back together. That's reconciliation. That's resurrection. That is rescue. That is what all of these things are all about. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we get to breathe. And while this is not fully and completely done, there are times when we get to be refreshed. Illustrated once again by Daniel Tiger. The house we built got knocked down And it made us mad, girl mad, really mad, 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 mad When you feel so mad that you want to roar Take a deep breath and count to four One, two, three, 
Everybody. Some of you right now are a little distracted by my current viewing habits throughout the week. So, <laughs> Yes, I've been watching a lot of Daniel Tiger recently. <laughs> but there are some beautiful lessons. By the way, this isn't just a children's thing. Of Many of you, if this is a complete side note, some of you know that Fred Rogers, who was an ordained Presbyterian minister, is actually one of Danielle's and my heroes. I think Christine mentioned being a hero as well. I mean, we love, love, love Fred Rogers. He's an ordained Presbyterian minister. He talks about how the space between my mouth and the TV screen on the other side is holy ground. Uh, his, his ministry through um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and now Daniel Tiger is really incredible. And I start to see some of these reflections, some of these lessons, some of these themes whenever I see So my friends, in all of these moments, there are struggles, there's challenges, there's things where there are uh, tensions and anxieties and uncertainties about what is to come and where we are and where we need to be. Repent. In other words, come back home. Come back to that place. Center yourself again. Remind yourself of who you are. Remind yourself of God's love, of God's grace. Remind yourself that you are created in his image and his likeness. Remind yourself of all the things that you do have as a result of God sustaining your life right here, right now. Remind yourself of that. Come back to that place. Wherever you may be on your journey, come back there. And you will find, for a time, for a season, a time of refreshing. There's a biblical scholar in T. Wright who says that terms are like suitcases. They get thrown around. Uh, And they carry lots of luggage. But when we talk to other people, oftentimes we just hit people over the head with the suitcase. Like, don't you believe in this? And then we use a particular term. For example, the word salvation is one that is used frequently. And salvation has a lot of baggage inside of its suitcase. One of them happens to be this, the gospel hand. And this is what it means to be saved. You know that God loves you, but you're a sinner. And Christ died for you. If you only believe, then you will go to heaven. And this gets then stuffed into that suitcase of the word Salvation. There's another one, a famous picture where God is over here, people are over here, Jesus is in the middle, and if you believe and if you confess with your sins, you walk over and then you get to be saved. This is one of the ways in which that definition gets stuffed into the suitcase of the word salvation. Later in chapter 4, there's going to be this famous verse that there is no other name given to men by which you may be saved except the name of Jesus. And that word salvation is going to be used there. That's in chapter 4. That comes right after this chapter that we just discussed where Peter's talking about times of refreshing. My friends, I'm going to suggest to you that the salvation word can also be stuffed with this definition too. Sometimes salvation doesn't mean some sort of radical religious conversion. Sometimes salvation just simply means in your season of exile, you find a moment, a time where your spirit is refreshed. And that can be, for you, salvation. So what is this miracle all about? This miracle can also simply be an illustration. Here's a guy who's in exile, in a community that's in exile. And they're hoping for some sort of perpetuation of this system. But Peter and John... They don't give what they think this person wants. They give him a time of refreshing. That in the midst of this exile, 
in the midst of all sorts of chaos going around, in the midst of the injustices that are happening, there is a moment, there is a season, there is a time when some sort of beautiful salvation can actually happen. There is a glimpse of the sacred, a moment of transcendence that happened in the midst of this movement. Not everybody in the first century during this Jesus movement, quote, got saved and healed in that way. We know this historically, but these miracles are there to show us that it does happen, and there are those times. Those miracles and acts illustrate to us that it happens, and it's not the full and complete end. That's why we're still in exile. We're still trying to figure our way through, but if we come home, there will be those moments, and you will get to experience those moments. You will get to experience those times of refreshing in your life through coming home and reminding yourself who you are, reminding yourself of who God is. How did these people get this movement to move forward in the midst of the chaos and the death and the oppression and the injustices that still plagued them? They had those times of refreshing, those moments of transcendence, those moments of holiness that constantly reminded them God is still active. God is still moving. God is still at work. And through my intentional returning back to home, then I can also experience those times of refreshing. And I hope you do too. God, I know I'm talking to a lot of people that are in exile, whether it's job, employment, relationship, personal struggles, health, wherever it is. And so, God, I pray that you would encourage all of us to just turn back to you in the midst of this season of exile so that we can experience a brief time of relief, of breathing, of refreshment, and of encouragement to be re-enlivened by your spirit. I pray in your name. Amen.